0: If you have your scriptures, please open up to Acts chapter 27, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are going to be really in about six chapters today, so I'm going to start in verse 20, but just a little context that will make more sense in a moment. Paul is boarding a ship now as a prisoner, this time a prisoner, on his way to Rome to stand before Caesar. And if you know the story in Acts 27, there's a, a huge storm Um, and it's about 14 days long. And in the midst of the storm, we'll pick up verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would... Have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, This weekend marks uh, a season of conflict in the Mattisich house, and I'm sure it's a season of conflict for others, and it's just so stereotypical that somebody who looks like me would be so excited about football season. But I truly am. And the conflict happens every Saturday where I have this dilemma. Am I going to be the kind of husband and parent that I should be or should I be the kind of fan that I should be? And those come in huge conflict in our house. In fact, yesterday I was still trying, I'm still trying to convince our children that watching football is a great activity and it's very fun and they should really enjoy it even at five or six years old. To which, to which our six-year-old Henry, who, who is like reading up a storm right now, knows very clearly what our house is about. And I don't even need to say the team because you know what so clearly our house is about. He comes out of his room wearing orange and said, well, I'm just going to sit here and root for Virginia, Dad. And he thought if he called... Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway... uh... And, and, and so, so so he's got this idea that if he, just, if he could just get on the other side, then somehow i want to turn off the game. And it shouldn't bother me, but it really does bother me that he would not root for our family team. There's certain things we're about as a family. And this is up at the top. So, uh, but it, it starts this huge conflict in our home um, because I just love the game. But it also starts this conflict and some reflection about my own, my own life. In 1992... Um, I was starting my sophomore year of high school. Some of you know this story. And it was a day like any other day. It was the first day that we got to put on pads at football practice. I was an offensive lineman. I loved the game. And I remember this morning so clearly, because it was the first day of pads. I woke up and packed my, my cooler. I had in the freezer a big frozen igloo thing of Gatorade. And, and it was off for the first full day. We'd have the first practice, have a break and then the second practice. And it was about five minutes left in the second practice where the coaches had just told us earlier that towards the end of the second practice, they're going to look for heart. They're going to look for energy. And those who still have energy at the end of practice, those are going to be the starters. So it's five minutes to go. Last practice, play is called. And I remember distinctly thinking, I'm going to to give this all that I have, this play, because this will probably be it for the day. And I go upfield, and I go for this block, and, and I hit the safety so hard that I got uh, I blacked out. I knocked out. I didn't think much of it because it was the last practice. It was the last minutes of practice that day. But the next day I woke up with a headache. And the headache didn't seem to go away. And it was just a matter of days when I was on surgery table having brain surgery. And I was told that my football days were over. See, that, that morning when I packed the cooler and I packed the igloo, I had my life was on a trajectory. I, I was on a specific journey. And football was a huge part of it. But isn't it amazing that in a matter of one moment the journey that I was on as this athlete as this football player that journey was was changed just in a, in a moment, just in a second. I know that that's not unique to my story. That so often we find ourselves moving along life in a certain direction and and one phone call. One one doctor's visit. One one call in from the boss and everything changes. Last week Greg preached a, a powerful message where we saw Paul boarding a boat set for Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem. He was he was on a roll in his ministry. Previously, miracles are happening. Many Gentiles are coming to Christ. He's at a place of success in ministry. And when he boarded that ship set for Jerusalem, little did he know that everything was going to change when he arrived. Everything was going to change. And the context of of chapter 27, only Greg could finish at chapter 20 and then give me 27. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens between 20 and 27. I'm going to ask for you to hang with me just for a moment because the context is so important because we've just read a story of Paul getting on a boat as a prisoner now, set for Rome. And there's about two years in between these two boat journeys that is massive, that is incredibly... It's high drama... As I was reading it all week, I am so curious to why this hasn't become a movie yet. Just even these seven chapters. So we'll get some context, and then we'll try to help this make sense, and, and we'll get on with our our worship. So God, uh, be with us this morning. Speak to us. Allow Your Word to not just be interesting stories and interesting facts, but let it penetrate our souls. Let it penetrate our hearts. Again, that we might leave different than when we came because we, one, have encountered you through the power of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So Paul gets on a boat last week set for Jerusalem. When he lands in Jerusalem, listen to what faced him. The moment he lands in chapter 21, he's arrested. He's arrested because of his ministry to Greeks. He's arrested because of his ministry to Gentiles. Because he would bring them into the temple for worship. That he was proclaiming that this, this religion, that this, this temple was for all. He was beaten. He was put in chains. He had a mob after him. In fact, in verse 35 of 21, it says that the violence of the mob was so great that Paul had to be carried by the soldiers. And while he was carried by the soldiers, the crowds were following him, saying, away with him. This is quite a difference from where he was just a couple of chapters. Where he, he stayed three, four months in a temple and people were coming to Christ and miracles were happening and people were being converted. He was, he was hot. And now he's in Jerusalem and the first thing that awaits for him, that, that, that moment that changed everything. Paul is being beaten. He's been chained. He's, he's got mobs after him. And what is his response? We see it in chapter 22. His response to this change of circumstance is, let me speak to these people. He asked the soldiers to, to stop taking him away. Let me speak to these people who are after me, these people who are beating me, these people who are, are, are chasing me down. And in chapter 22, Paul addresses his accusers. He addresses the crowd. And what does he do? Just classic Paul. He shares his testimony with them. He shares how he met Jesus and who Jesus is to him, and how Jesus changed his life, and how the God that they know as the Jewish people is the same God who gave his son Jesus to the world. So he gives his testimony, and then verse 22, here's how the crowd responds to his testimony. Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. I don't think it went over very well. I hope today when you leave here, you don't say, rid the earth of Jeff. He's not fit to live. There's the things I'm not a lot fit to. But here we go, Paul. Again, opposition. In fact, the commander now who is carrying Paul has this conflict that we read about in 22. And the conflict is this. Is that the crowds are after him and they want us to do something. They want him dead. But I can't really find any government reason why we would, why we would do anything. Yet this, this, the, the, the crowds are so strong. So he says, I'm not going to decide this one. The government, we we don't have anything he's breaking here, but we'll just bring him to the religious authorities. So he brings him in front of the Sanhedrin. In 23, he goes before the Sanhedrin, and he again just shares who God is in his life to them. And it's so tense among the religious authorities that they take Paul away out of fear for his life, put him in some barracks, put him in prison. And it's there in prison That God speaks to Paul. It's there in prison where he gets this word, this mission, that he is to testify in Rome. A calling was happening. Why this calling was happening in the prison, what we find is that outside of the prison, people are gathering, and now they're trying to plot how we're going to kill Paul. So at the very time Paul gets his mission to go to Rome, to go testify about who Jesus is, the public is after him. The public is not just plotting how they can disrupt his life, they're plotting to kill him. In fact, it was so tense that they transferred him secretly to another city so that the crowds that were plotting him would gain some peace. And as he gets to this new city, Caesarea, we find out that the ruler at the time, a guy named Felix, is, really wants some popularity with the Jewish community. He, he understands they don't like this guy, but he doesn't want to kill him. And so the compromise that Felix comes up with is I can keep the Jewish community really happy with me if I just put him in prison. And so Paul then spends two years in prison. And Felix is succeeded by a new leader named Festus. And three days into Festus's leadership, as he kind of probably is reading about all the policies and everybody in prison, he, he, he wants to deal with Paul. So he calls for Paul to come meet with him. And Paul, when he meets Festus for the first time, after he's been in prison for two years, Paul doesn't go to Festus and ask to be released from prison. He asks if he can get to Rome, that he wants to go stand trial before Caesar. Festus is confused by this. He goes to his boss, King Agrippa. King Agrippa wants to meet Paul. And in chapter 26, we see this interaction between Paul, King Agrippa, and Festus, where Paul, again, when he stands before the king, just shares his testimony, shares who Jesus is in his life. And as he's sharing his testimony, verse 24, listen to the high drama of chapter 26. As Paul is right at the cusp of talking about who Jesus is in his life, Festus interrupted Paul's defense he said, "'You're out of your mind, Paul,' he shouted. "'Your great learning is driving you insane.' "'I'm not insane, most excellent Festus,' Paul replied. "'What I am saying is true and reasonable. "'The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. "'I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice "'because it was not done in a corner. "'King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? "'I know you do.' "'Then Agrippa said to Paul, "'Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian?' Paul replied, Short time or long I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he he had not appealed to go to Caesar, to go to Rome. Two years in prison. Two years in prison. Paul had all the time in the world to come up with what he would do when he finally faced the court, when he finally faced the authority. And what was on his mind wasn't his freedom. What was on his mind was his mission. He could have come up, we know Paul, highly intelligent. He could have come up with all the rationale as to why he should be set free. But what he does is he does what Paul does. He just shares who Jesus is in his life, and he appeals to the mission that he was on. So this is where we are when we come to chapter 27. We have Paul two years in prison before several different authorities, the religious authorities, the government authorities, now this King Agrippa. And he's gotten this mission Why he was in prison to go testify to who Jesus is in Rome. And he, he's finally being sent to Italy. He is finally being sent to Rome. And he's now a prisoner boarding a ship. And what chapter 27 is, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It is this incredible chapter in the book of Acts that has both the physical descriptions of what's happening in the weather system and what's happening on the boat. And it's also this very specific description of the emotional condition of those on board. So chapter 27, the physical condition of what's happening uh, with the weather and the storm and the the turmoil that's happening on board where people are trying to kill prisoners at one point and jump ship, and if we could just get on the dinghies and get out of here. And it's this long withstanding storm, but it's not just the physical description of what's happening. It's this emotional condition of the mood of the boat, the mood of the, the, the soldiers, the mood of the prisoners. And Paul, having this role in the midst of physical conditions, emotional reactions of the time, he he has this role of being a leader, of being someone who is speaking truth and speaking reality. So, from chapter 27, there are three observations that I think aren't just interesting facts about the story, but they have direct application to you and I as we go through our life. First observation from... From, the, from Paul's life, from these many chapters, from chapter 27. Point one. The mission is primary. The mission that Paul was on was his primary concern. In fact, this mission to Rome, and this mission has a location and it has an objective. The location was Rome. And prior to 22, where he's in prison and he hears this call to go testify in Rome... He also had heard that call in chapter 19. Again, at a time of great success where he's just, it's working. People are meeting Jesus. Miracles are happening. He senses in chapter 19, you can read it, where he says, I've also got to take this to Rome. I've got got to share this message at Rome. But really, the mission wasn't just about Rome. It, It goes back to Acts chapter 1. It was the ultimate mission of the church. That's the same mission for you and I today. Because it's in chapter 1 where we find out that we are to be witnesses. Paul is to be a witness of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the ultimate mission. That is the primary mission that defined Paul's life. Everything for Paul was about fulfilling that mission. That was the primary reality in his life. The objective The location was Rome, but the objective was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I find it so interesting that he really heard his mission in two completely different contexts. Chapter 19, a time of great success, since God calling him and the courage to now go into uh, bring the gospel to Rome. And then in, in the barracks, in the prison, while people are plotting his death, he receives that same mission. Isn't that life? That sometimes we sense that God has put us on this mission to bring his name and to make it famous in the world. And there's times where that calling and that mission come at really great moments in our life where it's working. But there's also times where that mission comes in our life when life is difficult, when life is hard. I think about my own um, calling into ministry I was in high school when I sensed this is what God wanted me to do with my life and I was working at my home church in Ventura and we used to bring kids up to Forest Home and the camp director was watching me hang out with kids and pulled me aside and said, you should work up here someday. And I I said, that sounds great. And next summer I moved up there and lived there for a couple of years. A time of great success. A a time where I was just being observed, where I was just hanging out and playing with kids and and somebody saw that and said, I know where you can live this mission next. How about how a about Forest Home? Two years of some of the most incredible years of my life. It's really fun to live at camp. You have like a lake and a pool all year long. It's great. And really bad food. Um, but towards the end of that really great, successful ministry, I was in a really tough spot. I'd flunked out of college because this girl broke my heart. And I remember John John Wilson, who served here so faithfully faithfully for years, was up at Forest Home with Lake Avenue students. And he looked at me, and as only John can be so blunt, said something like, you look terrible. Come work at Lake Avenue. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Uh, And and really, that's where my calling to hear came. So in 1999, at a place of, 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 of flunking out of college, a place of isolation and depression, that God still revealed his mission to me. All right, see, because the context can change, but the objective is always the same. Friends, Paul knew something that we have to be reminded of this morning, that all of our life is about advancing the mission of God in this world. That no matter our circumstance, no matter the location, you and I who call on Jesus as the Lord of our lives have a responsibility to make the mission of God primary in our lives. Nothing else takes second place it's not about being more at work it's not about making more money as the primary objective in our life it's the primary objective in our life is the mission of god to make his name known to bring his goodness and peace and blessing to those around us and to a world that desperately needs it paul understood this he knew that the mission was primary second observation Yes, the mission is primary, but number two, difficulty and hardship are a reality. When you read chapter 27, it's so interesting to me that this mission that God had called Paul to, to go to Rome. He's been in prison for two years for this mission. And you would think, you would think, if we were planning Paul's life, it would be really great for the, the two weeks leading up to where he finally gets to Rome, if he had a nice leisurely boat ride there so he could prepare. You, you know, you, you, you are so generous to this church. You, I actually got paid this week to quietly sit in my office and to prepare a sermon. Paul, two weeks before he is on trial for his life, where the gospel is being proclaimed to a world that wasn't friendly to it. The two weeks leading up to that, Paul is on a boat where there's the strongest storm that's recorded in the scriptures. Where, where, where people are in panic, where hopelessness and fear are part of it. The two weeks leading up to the most important moment of his life that fo- thus far is marked with difficulty and hardship. A 14-day storm in the context of a two-year prison term. Think about Paul, the emotional loss that has happened in his life. The physical cost of being beaten, being confined, wearing chains. The material loss of losing all of your possessions, all that you have. Your life being marked with hopelessness and fear. Friends, the reality is this, is that when we are on God's mission, even our best laid plans are not for sure things. Living the mission of Jesus most often comes in the context of seasons of difficulty and hardship. We ought not be surprised by that. I think in 27 there's this, there's this image that I think is just so true for so many Christians sometimes. That we meet Jesus, we give our life to him, and then there's this kind of cultural understanding that's not biblical, that somehow if Jesus is in our life, that life just should kind of work out. And that the high drama and the pain, all of that was prior to being with Jesus, and now everything should be better. And in the story, when we see the soldiers and we see people wanting to jump ship... To get out of that storm, I think that's the temptation for you and I sometimes when crisis comes. When difficulty and hardship come, we want to just jump ship. Avoid it. And so often I think Christians jump church because there's not a context for seeing God in the midst of the difficulty. We have this, uh, there's this equation that we kind of live life by where if we believe all the right things and we do all the right things and we prepare all the right ways, then life should have less conflict in it. And you and I know that's just not true. That there are circumstances that come out of nowhere that even the best planning can't avoid. When, when Jenny and I were expecting our first child, it was at a time of being uh, parents and pregnant that I think we're still in, and some of the older generations can laugh at this. But we spent a lot of time working on what was called a what's called a, a birth plan. Isn't that contradictory? Um, know, we read certain books and, you, you, you know, watched some documentaries about uh, having children and, and you, whether you do it natural or not, and, and Jenny and I just had been married so long that we actually had time to talk and think about these things, so we read books, and we spent a good chunk of time writing out our birth plan, and that birth plan had a lot to do with the food she was eating or not eating, the environment in which when labor started that we were going to try to accomplish uh, we went to certain classes with like-minded people. And, and, and everything was cruising. Everything was going well. And that last appointment, a week before the due date, we go to the OB, and the OB notices something and starts kind of moving the sonogram around, and all of a sudden becomes a little concerned, sends us to a specialist. Uh, that day we walked over to a specialist. The specialist does a, a different kind of uh, x-ray and sonogram, And it was decided in that moment that day that we would need to have emergency C-section the next morning because of the way things were looking. So that wasn't in the birth plan. (laughs) The night before we're supposed to have a baby, we're having like grass-fed beef at a nice restaurant. We're listening to Yanni so it can be nice and peaceful. Right? And now now we're... (laughs) emergency c-section so already the birth plan is disrupted so we're trying to reclaim the plan and the next morning we're we're sitting in the room getting ready for this c-section and the nurse who is just was a godsend comes to us her she's actually a, a pastor's wife in town and she comes to us and says you know jeff here's what you can expect after they've you know talked to jenny i'm just useless in this whole thing and you're gonna be behind this curtain with jenny and it will go very fast and when you hear a cry when you hear a cry That is when, that's when you'll know it's just a matter of moments. We're just going to clean the baby up a little bit and you're going to hold that baby. So when you get in, it's probably less than three minutes. So I go into the room and it gets to about four minutes and I notice that there's a load of nurses and doctors running into the room and there's no cry. Our son had the cord wrapped twice around his neck, came out not breathing. And for the next four hours... I got to go walk by the NICU, look at him from a distance, and then come back to Jenny who was recovering from a C-section and say he's still breathing. See, that wasn't in the birth plan. Even our best laid plans, we did all the right things. We read all of the books. And even in that context, difficulty and hardship were a reality. Difficulty and hardship are always a reality for those of us who follow Jesus. I think about Matt and Grace Huang, and you're going to hear some more about that. We're going to have an opportunity in the middle of September to go to City Hall, L.A. City Hall, and to demonstrate, to say justice for them. These are amazing followers of Jesus who who are part of our congregation, who I sat with a couple months before they left, who had the mission of God as primary in their life. We're going to the far reaches of the earth make His name known and famous, and they get to that land, and what has greeted them there? Difficulty and hardship and prison. That even the best laid plans and the most faithful calling to the mission comes with difficulty and hardship and there's a temptation the temptation is to jump the ship to leave the faith but the challenge is to embrace that difficulty the challenge is to understand that is just part of life that is part of following jesus read the psalm psalm 13 pulls no punches starts out with this where are you god have you forgotten me forever How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. We quote the Psalms, and David is a man after God's own heart, and even he had moments of difficulty and hardship, amen? And he cried to God. He embraced that difficulty. He embraced that hardship. Paul embraced it. The Scriptures are full of people who embrace it. May we be the kind of people that as we make the mission primary in our lives, that we embrace the difficulty, that we embrace the difficulty and, and, and the hardship. Final observation. Mission is primary. Difficulty and hardship are reality. And here's the hope that courage is given abundantly. That's our scripture today, the one we read. After he'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now, I urge you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Lake Avenue Church, I encourage you to keep the courage. Not one of you will be lost in the context of difficulty and hardship. You might lose a ship. You might lose some of your stuff. You might lose some things, but you will not be forgotten. You will not be lost. The words that Paul proclaimed that day on that boat are words that can be proclaimed in truth to you and I today. Do not be afraid, keep your courage. For I have faith in God that it will happen as he told me. And I love this. Nevertheless, we're going to run aground on some island. It's this, again, this tension. That in the midst of the difficulty, we are part of a family and we have a father who gives courage and peace abundantly. When I think of Paul's life in these many verses, I think... The courage it must have taken to speak to those in power about Jesus. The courage when your life is on the line to say, hey, I don't want to run away from these crowds, let me talk to them. What courage God gave him. Courage to endure physical pain. Some of us live in physical pain every day. And God gives courage to face each day. The courage Paul had to face Losing his freedom. Losing his friendships. Losing his possessions. The courage Paul had to have to speak to a world that he already knew was going to see him as crazy and ridiculous. The courage to be thankful when the provision is not right in front of his face. The courage to be honest. See, God gives us all of that. There's an abundant amount of courage that God gives us, his children, to live the mission that he has called us to. I find it so interesting when I think about Paul's life. The, the area that speaks to me is the courage to speak when you know that people around you will think it's ridiculous. And, and, and whether you're following or not, that is the kind of the, the world we live in right now. The world that you and I live in, when we start talking about the scriptures and we talk about God's way of living in this world, it becomes more and more ridiculous to the world sometimes. And yet God calls us to be courageous. One of my least favorite things is, is how quickly in conversation with neighbors or, or, or with, with on a plane or traveling, that the conversation turns to what do you do for a living? Because I'll know in about 10 seconds when I answer that question whether this person is regretting asking me that question or that the next two hours of my life has just been taken to serve Jesus happily. Um, And in those moments, I'll tell you the truth there's part of me that wants to say, um, I, I, I work in community development, I'm a teacher. Because I don't have to have as much courage. People have a context for that that's not ridiculous. Same thing's true for you. It has nothing to do with me being a pastor. It has to do with our faith, right? When the people you work with or people in your family or people who live next to you, when they find out that you're a Christian, that you follow Jesus, that your life is about this mission, we know that that sometimes is just responded to that that they think we're crazy. Like King Agrippa thought Paul was crazy. You know what I find so inspiring about Paul is that when he had the courage to speak in those environments, read it throughout the scriptures, he spoke with such respect. He spoke with such truth. He was able to find this balance of being okay with what they would think about him, but that he, he spoke with great respect to people who live differently. He spoke with great... Um, reverence for their position but he also spoke faithfully about who Jesus is maybe there's an example there for you I know there is for me so what about our lives what might we do differently as we leave today and go into the world one the question is are you on mission with your life do you see God's mission as primary in your life I, I, it's not the mission of being a good church attender. The mission is to make Jesus known and to bring His blessing into a world wherever He has placed you. Maybe we need to reset sometimes and evaluate the locations that God has given us. For us, in the last couple of weeks, we've we've moved and we've started school. Our son started elementary school. Those aren't just shifts in our family. Those aren't like oh now we have a new school in a new neighborhood. No, that's our mission. If mission is primary, then I have a responsibility, even when boxes are piled high, that when I come home and somebody is standing outside their home, that I'm tired and I don't want to, but I need to go meet that person because God has placed them in my vicinity and the mission of God is primary and that person matters. Or when I drop off our son at elementary school, as much as I'm tired and I don't really like all these kids around and I don't want to talk to strangers, that's where God has placed me. So, I have a responsibility to engage that because the mission is primary. What about your life? Where are the locations that God has placed you to make his mission primary? Our mission at Lake is very clear make disciples, become complete in Christ. That's what we're doing this fall. That's why we're having a shared faith emphasis that we come together, center around the mission, so that we can go take it to the various locations God has placed us to make his name known. And Famous, so are you on mission too? Is it time to just embrace maybe some hardship and difficulty as reality? to stop being upset, to stop wanting to jump ship and to to be real that this is just part of life and to, to be able to dialogue with God about that, not run from him with that? I find it so interesting because Jesus says it him very self to his disciples, it's recorded in three of the Gospels where he says, if any of you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily. Now, we we don't need to have a long reflection on what it meant for Jesus to take up his cross, but it wasn't easy. It was marked with difficulty, physical pain. And he says to us, if you want your life to look like my life, Take up your cross daily. We should not be surprised that difficulty and hardship are part of this life. But we don't need to run from God. We can run to him with that. We do not have to live this alone. Finally, do some of you just need some courage this morning? God has an abundant amount to give us. Are you in a storm right now? Are you in a desert as Anne shared her testimony this morning? I've been doing some reflection off a speaker I heard this summer who who put a new spin on the crisis of Sabbath in our culture, and especially in our church culture. See, the reason that God set aside a day, there's lots of reason, wasn't so that we could just sleep and read a novel and to just get some downtime, but that tends to be the primary way we talk about Sabbath. Just, Just rest a little bit. Well, I think some of that's true, but that's why we have church too. We gather together as part of Sabbath because for six days, you and I live in a world that just takes it out of us. Where there are tough decisions, tough realities, tough circumstances. And on that seventh day, We come together, we proclaim the name of Jesus, we learn more about Him, we 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 understand who He is, we reorient our lives, and we receive the courage we need to go back out and live it for six more days. So it's so confusing to me when people say, I can't make it to church today because we're just so tired, we're going to take our Sabbath at home. I, I think that can happen. But the primary way that we come together and why we do this is because six days, it's hard. Especially when we make mission primary in our life, this is difficult. We've got to gather together and have the discipline to worship and to be under God's word and to be reminded of who God is in this world and the calling he has on our lives so that when we go out those doors, get in our cars, our courage quotient is up. So we can face another week and then come back next week and get it again and go back into this world to live the mission. Last week we were moving. It was quite a week. will close with this. Quite a week. Um, I cried three different for different, different reasons with different emotions. We Dropped off our son for kindergarten, and I cried. And then we're moving, and I looked at all these boxes and all this junk we have in our life, and I cried. And it was a totally <laughs> different cry. <laughs> and then Greg... Greg made me cry all weekend last weekend. I mean, I'll be back before you know it. And I'm I'm like, don't leave. And I'm crying like crazy. So Saturday night, we've been moving stuff all day long and sweaty. And I've got to get to service. And he'll just confess to you, the last place I wanted to be at 3 o'clock on Saturday was to start changing at 4 o'clock and to get to church at 5 o'clock. Not where I wanted to be. What I wanted to do was sit on a couch with an iced tea and have somebody watch my children. So I come to church, out of because it's my job, and I'm just being honest with you, and I come in here on a Saturday night, and I sit right where Myra is sitting in the front row, and Andy Hawkins, Perry, our junior high director, his wife, she's singing the song, the desert song, and I just break down. There's something about those lyrics that spoke to where I was, that I was in a desert, that I was exhausted, that I was emotionally drained. And there was something about being in the worshiped community that reoriented me, that reminded me of my real purpose in life and that God is right there with me, emboldening me and helping me. And there was, when I left, I left different than when I came. Because when we do that, when we do church together, we leave different than when we came. Full of courage. Full of God to go face another week. Join me in prayer. God, we need your help. There are so many other things telling us what the most important thing is in life, but we confess to you that whether we have lived it or not, we know that the mission of our life is to make your name known and famous in this world. We need your help to do that. There are circumstances, difficulty, hardships that come our way that just go against believing that that is the most primary part that our pain becomes the most primary. God, help us, save us from that. Give us that abundant amount of courage to go face another week, to face the circumstances, to face the realities that we're in. We need your help, God. We will give you praise, God, even in the midst of the difficulty. Amen.